The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Very nice to be with everybody tonight doing one of my favorite things. You know, and with this size group, we can really make it more of a Dharma contemplation together, you know, where we're, I'll share a little bit, but hopefully. People will also share from your own practice and any questions that are emerging. And it really is, you know, what we're bringing up. It's kind of a sacred thing for human beings to do. To, we're not gathering together in your <clears throat> physical space, but here online. And we've got this hour or so to contemplate what is actually most important, which is like, how is it that I end up suffering so much? <laughs> you know, how is it that my heart often feels so burdened or tight or reactive or numb? Why does life hurt so much of the time? Not always. I mean, obviously, hopefully, there are moments of real beauty and release and lightness, love. But for most people, right, suffering, stress, heaviness of the heart, it's a pretty regular visitor for us. So it's quite uh, appropriate, natural for any human being that has a little bit of space in their life, not completely overwhelmed by survival needs, to become reflective. This is like the beginning of being what we might call a spiritual seeker. And we have that question that I just asked, like, whoa, how is it that I end up so tight? You know, the grip of anger. The Buddha talks about the fire of greed, you know, the fire of lust, the fire of wanting stuff, wanting something to happen. And the grip of hate, you know, when I'm irritated, when I'm upset, when I'm self-righteous, it's like the heart is in a grip. And the net of delusion, the net of confusion. And this is, these are kind of the active manifestations of, you know, having a life, having a mind and body, but not really having much of a clue about how it is that suffering arises. Because, you know, the, the usual thing our mind does with suffering is we blame it on something. You know, it's because my partner doesn't know how to love me. You'd think, you know, we've been married this long or together this long. You'd think they would finally be able to make me happy. Right? So it's like we blame my unhappiness on my partner, on the weather, on politics on my health, on my upbringing, my parent, you know, my people who parented me. And and it's such a disempowering thing for us to do. I mean, it's totally natural to notice that we're suffering, but it's unhelpful to associate the cause with something I have no control over, like my partner, the weather politics, whatever it might be. Because then I'm screwed, basically. Like, okay, so 
I guess I just have to live with it. And we, we stop being curious and interested. And uh, it's a real turning point when we develop this intuition that the real cause, not the cause for pain, you know, there's pain shows up in life and we may not have anything that we can do to lessen that pain. So it's useful to separate the inevitable pain that comes with life. I would include here even something like loss, the pain of loss, a breakup, for example, the loss, the death of a good friend or something like that. That That's just inevitable. Pain comes with life. But I would make suffering different than pain. Suffering is when the heart resists or denies or struggles with pain, the ordinary unavoidable pain in life. It creates, it makes a big deal of pain in a way that amplifies or the simile the Buddha used is this shooting ourselves with a second dart or a second arrow. Maybe some of you have heard, it's a very famous teaching where the Buddha, I mean, just the simplistic version is, you know, being alive, having a mind and body, we're going to get hit with a dart. Some people get hit with a dart a lot of the time, right? There's sort of different lo cultural locations. So some people are getting a lot more darts than other people. But whether you're, you have bad fortune or you have good fortune, we can learn not to shoot the second dart that we can do something about. And that's really addressing the root of suffering. The way that our heart or the mind responds to the ordinary, unavoidable exposure that just comes with human life, with having a mind and a body. So how can we have this exposure to pain or the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows? That's a nice little teaching phrase that comes from some of the later schools of Buddhism, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. This is just what comes with life. And the interesting spiritual question is, what, are, what is my mind in the habit of doing with the 10,000 joys and sorrows? Do I remain attached and wanting the joys and fearful and pushing away the sorrows? Because that's layering suffering on top of the normal, ordinary dance with the 10,000 joys and sorrows that come with living. There's a story um, <clears throat> that I like to tell. I haven't told, told it in a while. I learned it a long, long time ago. Some Zen teacher, uh, I think Ed Brown is where I heard it first. He was a well-known teacher, uh, sort of first generation of students of Suzuki Roshi who started the San Francisco Zen Center. He wrote a book way back when I was starting to get interested in Buddhism. There was a great uh, uh, place to practice Tassajara just south of San Francisco. And uh, Ed Brown was a cook and he wrote a book, a couple of cookbooks. One was the Tassajara bread book about how to make bread, which I read a long time ago. But anyway, he told this story about a farmer. It's a made-up story. It doesn't actually 
you know, happened at the time of the Buddha, but it involves the Buddha. So there's a farmer who gets pretty frustrated with life, the 10,000 joys and sorrows, and sets off to find the Buddha to help him with all his suffering in life. And he has to travel a long time before he tracks down the Buddha. Eventually he's able to have a conversation with the Buddha. So he just launches into all the problems he has, like his kids don't do the chores they're supposed to do, and the weather doesn't do what it's supposed to do, and his partner is imperfect, and the farm animals, you know, are stubborn, and this and that, and right? he goes on and on, just about all the problems that are there. And the Buddha listens very attentively, compassionately, and then says, well, you see, everybody has 83 problems. And even if somehow I had some clever solution for one of the problems, you just get another problem. Everybody has 83 problems. And you can imagine the farmer was not so happy with that response. And he stormed away, probably cursing under his breath, you know, what the heck, traveled all this way just to be told that everybody has 83 problems. And just before he was out of earshot, the Buddha says, you know, I can't help you with your 83 problems, just comes with life, but I can help you with your 84th problem. And maybe you've heard this story before, but what do you think his 84th problem is? He doesn't like having 83 problems. That's the 84th problem. And that's really where the Buddhist teachings, that's really what it focuses on. It's like, there's nothing we can do with our exposure. I mean, I'm not saying we don't put a sweater on when we're cold or eat some food when we're hungry or, you know, try to reconcile conflict when we're having a hard time with someone. But we do those things never supposing we're going to get done with it. You know, we're always putting on sweaters and taking off sweaters. We're always getting in and out of conflicts with other people. That's probably not going to stop. We're always going to have problems with illness and aging. That's just the ordinary territory of being a human being. But our practice really is addressing any resistance in the mind and the heart to the exposure that comes with being a human being. Some of you are probably parents, right? Maybe raise your hand if you're a parent. Do we have parents? So, you know, this is like, in some ways, it's the most obvious example of exposure. Even when your kids are older, but certainly when they're young, you know, it's such a setup where you're completely responsible for this person, but there's no way to sort of like have a plan where you're going to perfectly raise this child. Even something simple like, what do you feed the kid? You know, how do you know? Like organic, non-organic, you know? And how does that fit with my budget? Or do I let them look at a screen or no screens? A good friend of mine who's a Dharma teacher had just one kid and um, I, I kind of, I've known her forever. And so I was there when the child is now an adult, you know, in his 30s. But I was there when he was a kid and, um, and she said, you know, when he was like four, okay, no guns for this kid. Nothing that looks like a gun, no guns, right? 
But, you know, kids are very creative and they can turn anything into a gun. <laughs> and I forget what it was, but I remember one time she told we were having lunch or something and she was just describing like what he would do to get a gun, you know, whether it's a banana or whatever. And then he's, you know, the spaceman with a space gun or something like that. So this is, you know, being a parent or being in relationship with another human being, being in a more committed relationship, or caring about social justice, or even like in terms of having a meditation practice, and uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to take responsibility for my mind. It's a little bit like being a parent, right? <laughs> I'm sure you've noticed that when you sit. It's a lot like being a parent. It's like, here I am responsible for my thinking mind, my emotional mind, and yet I don't have a clue how to take care of this mind, I mean, initially. Like, do I get real parental and tell my mind what to do? Well, how does that work? Probably like it works when you have a kid and you're trying to tell it what to do. But leaving it completely alone doesn't work either, you know, because the mind will get into a lot of trouble, just like your kid would. So this is sort of the experience of us human beings, where, like it or not, life comes with this exposure. And it's the exposure is inherently uncertain. <clears throat> we often hear about the Buddhist teachings on impermanence in this kind of microscopic way, you know, where we're um, in more concentrated meditation practice, you get the sense that even the solidity of the body begins to be more and more characterized by that changing nature. So we go from our ordinary perception of the body of, you know, being solid, and if you touch it, you know, you don't go, your hand doesn't go right through your body, there's actual skin and bone and flesh and muscle and Things are permanent and solid in way. But as we're sitting and the quality of the mind becomes more refined, our actual experience of the body changes and it feels much more light, like energy, like not much of anything. And that's not like some trippy, you know, imagination. That's the actual perception of the body. And people will report, oh, I was just floating. You know, this whole thing about levitation. It's, it's this experience of the body as uh, like the perception, what the mind is noticing about the body. It isn't caught by its idea of solidity, of weight, right? And it's really beginning to experience the body in a more subtle way. So... Uh, this uh, this world is isn't what it appears to be, but what we know, just even on the grosser level, is that it's uncertain. That I can't tie it up into little organized, trustworthy. Whether we're talking about the health in our body, or our finances, or important relationships. And, you know, part of our culture is this uh, kind of a cult of competence. Because it's just, I, I don't know if it's part of Western culture, um, 
maybe it's more, I mean, I know sort of European, white, Western culture, and there seems to be pretty thick around competence as the solution to every problem. I just, you know, like this mastery, I'll work hard, I'll figure it out, I'll get competent, and then I'll be safe. And that's a real setup for, <laughs> we probably have learned that lesson, you know, and it's how many of us have worked on our intimate relationships, mostly the other person, like I'll make my partner just the way I want them to be, and then I'll be happy. I'll make my body just the way I want it to be, you know, my work scene just the way I want it to be. But it never, that work never gets done, nor does the work around our to-do lists ever get done. So then this, you know, this betrayal, this frustration, eventually, if we're fortunate, turns the mind in a spiritual direction where we begin, because it hasn't worked, we begin to look at the impermanence, the unreliability, the exposure of just ordinary life, the sort of ordinary characteristic of every level of life, the gross to the subtle, is that it's unreliable, it's ungovernable. We can't create utopia. Do you know anybody who has utopia? I mean, we imagine superficially, boy, if I were that person, with that body, with that kind of mind, with that kind of wealth, with then. But you know, if we really had a moment inside that person, their mind, their body, you know, they're pretty much in the same place we're at. So that turning in the spiritual direction is realizing that cult of competence is not the way to happiness. And then the other thing the Buddha describes is, nor is giving up a path to real peace or happiness or freedom. Wanting to become perfect, the Buddha says very directly, wanting to become perfect, whatever that is for you, you know, and it changes, you know. For me, in moments, perfect means I've got the perfect cabin on Lake Superior, no mosquitoes, lots of sunshine, but shade when I want it, you know, like everything's perfect. Then I'll be happy. So we all, you know, this is the thing, we keep changing our idea of what would make me happy, but none of that will actually make us happy. And so we start to swing from that to, I just want to get out of here then. If nothing's going to make me happy, I don't want anything to do with life. And then we're willing to drink too much or watch too much TV or basically fill our lives with stuff that don't lead anywhere because we've given up on the promise of competence, working hard, getting me to my perfect place. And of course, giving up doesn't work either. It doesn't lead to freedom, doesn't lead to happiness. So that's the middle way. You've got to give up the cult of perfection, the cult of competence. I can make it happen. I can get some place where I'm finally going to have everything I need. And we have to give up the idea that we can get out of here. This is what's so useful about the story, and I think it's good to call it a story or myth, about rebirth. But to stay open to that myth, to use that myth of 
rebirth, not to reject it because it doesn't fit with my actual experience. I don't have actual evidence of rebirth, but it's a useful story because it, it, for me, in my heart, it's a counterweight to the idea of, oh God, I'm 62, I'm just going to ride it out until I die, I give up, I don't know how to find real happiness. Because the story that I'm using of rebirth is, you just end up in another life, right? It's like, until you get it right, until you figure out how to find the release that the heart really seeks. This heart has some intuition, some spiritual intuition, that all weight, all constriction can be released. We've had enough glimpses, enough tastes, that somehow, even with the exposure that comes with having a mind and body, having a life, that somehow it's possible for this heart to be unburdened. Anybody not have some sliver of faith or confidence or insight in, into that possibility? Or at least curious about that possibility? In the same way that we probably have some insight, some evidence that the cult of competence hasn't really worked for me or anybody that I know, nor has all the strategies to give up, to want out, hasn't really led to anybody I know, myself included, finding any kind of peace or freedom in rejecting life. You know, it's sort of that that kind of rebel mentality. Oh, I'm not going to buy into the system. <laughs> so they create another system, which is not buying into the system, right? And you see this about, just like in terms of opinions. Oh, I'm not going to go. But then they create a whole other oppressive mind state that is in opposition to the status quo. And so that's the thing, is we have to see that every attempt we've made to get free has ended up as another oppressive place. And then that makes us a spiritual seeker. That initial place of being a spiritual seeker, we don't actually have a clue. We just are pretty sure every habit I have doesn't work. Right? That, but that's a really, that's not nothing, that's something. To be really suspect, suspicious about all our habits, about where happiness lies, to know that they haven't delivered, that's real wisdom. I mean, there's some real power, because now we have some humility, and because of that, we have some real curiosity. We can actually learn something. And then if we're fortunate, we bump into a teaching like this very simplified version of the Buddhist teachings, intimacy and non-attachment. Because in a, in a simple way, it sums up, you know, what the Buddha was talking about for 45 years while he was a teacher. He lived for 45 years after his deep insight, his deep awakening, traveling around northern India, of course, and but basically all those years of teaching, he was talking about intimacy, like how important it is that we develop our heart, 
or you could call it the mind. We develop our heart or mind so that we um, have this, it's like a, a skill to be intimate with this moment's experience. So the stability of present moment awareness. This is a lot what we do in our sitting practice. We're developing a particular, you could call it spiritual, but it's really just a, a mental or um, mental emotional muscle to be this stability of present moment awareness where there's both a depth and a breadth of presence and, and not just a flash of awareness, but it's stable, right? It's continuous and it's not judging and it's not trying to make something happen. That would be trying to get something, that competence. I'll make it, I'll get to heaven and then it will be mine or I'm trying to get out of here. Because these shadows exist even in our Dharma practice. The attainment shadow, thinking that I'm meditating to get a nice experience or I'm meditating to get the hell out of my yucky experience, to escape. Wanting to escape the sensitivity that comes with human existence is a trap. Wanting to get perfect conditions is a trap. Because, you know, we can have really nice experiences, but they never last in a way that's ultimately satisfying. So we're... The intimacy is really the Buddhist teachings on samadhi. Some of you know that Pali word that means, gets translated um, a lot of the time as concentration, but it's it's not a very good translation. A better translation is something like the coming together of the heart, the unification or gathering of all the energies of the mind and heart, so they're all in alignment with the intention to connect or to be intimate or to see clearly, to be with stuff, the moment, conditions, just as they are, right? So that's what we mean by samadhi and intimacy. It's like being able to meet the moment. That's one of two of our spiritual muscles. And then the other one, um, initially it's just a pointing out instruction, but it starts to, like, once we get it intellectually, non-attachment, which just means freedom, or the release, the ungripping of the heart, you know, have you noticed how much of the time when we care to notice, when we care to pay attention, the heart feels constricted, feels tight or heavy or burdened. And every once in a while, there's the release and there's present moment awareness in that moment. So we notice the experience of release, the non-constriction, the non-heaviness. Right? The heart being unburdened. I'm not saying that we don't have lots of moments of our heart being unburdened, but it has to line up with a moment of being that stability of awareness. So there's the combination of being intimate when, there's, when the heart is ungripped. And then we have a taste of freedom, like what's actually possible. And it perks the spiritual curiosity 
ah, maybe this is the way. Maybe this is what the Buddha was talking about and all those other people were talking about. And that's that 84th question, you know, that the Buddha says, I know I can't help you with 83, but I can help you with that 84th question that the farmer didn't even ask. What's the proper way to relate to 83 problems? What's the skillful way to relate to uncertainty, unreliability, the ungovernableness of life, which is just ordinary life? And the, you know, the answer is this coming together, this marriage of intimacy and non-grasping or intimacy and non-attachment. That's the way to be a farmer. That's the way to be a parent. That's the way to be a lover or a friend or an activist or a lawyer or a, you know, janitor or whatever somebody does. That's the way to die and that's the way to give birth and that's the way to have a good time when you're hanging out with friends and difficult time when you're dealing with physical pain or emotional pain, intimacy and non-grasping in it, it kind of makes sense that the answer to life, you know, the million dollar spiritual answer would be simple. Not easy. No one's saying it's easy, right? Because it, in a way, it really is counter to so much of our habit energy. Because when life is hard, when my I notice my heart is gripped, there's a lot of resistance. I don't want to be intimate because being intimate when my heart is tight means I'm going to really feel my heart is tight. <laughs> it's not going to be pleasant. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be really unpleasant. And as the awareness, that stability of awareness, realizes the tightness of my heart, I'm going to, the big habit will be to relate to that grip with attachment. I want to be free of this attachment. Or I give up. I just want to be done. Get me out of here. Right? So, so the, the way we often practice is like our formal sitting. I'll just say something about that and then I'll open it up for discussion. So the Buddha was really smart. You know, he understood. He, he made all the mistakes himself so that when he articulated this path that we've been you know, passing down one generation after another now for 2,500 years, that the teachings even this long ago, you know, from this long ago, through so many different cultures, they're still really useful and practical. And so the formal sitting time is really coming from this recognition that this is a really challenging practice. So to really get a sense of this marriage of intimacy and non-grasping, it's really important to find conditions that make it relatively easy. So that's why we sit in a quiet space. You know, in a perfect world, we'd be in a beautiful meadow with a little babbling brook, no bugs, not too much shade, not too much sun. And even the Buddha said, you know, different people like different things. Some of you need to be in an open space, like an open field. Other people prefer to be under a tree in a forest. You know, it's just 
kind of depends on a person's temperament, conditioning, what the preferred space is. So what that means is when you, you know, given the limits of your life, when you're, when you're fortunate and you have 30 minutes to sit, ask the question, well, what's a good time? Where's a good place? Should I have an altar in front of me or should I be in front of an open window? What location, what time, what conditions will create the optimal conditions for my heart to be willing to practice being intimate and to realize this possibility of non-grasping, non-attachment, just letting life rip, just letting conditions come and go. And it's not only that, but like a lot of you, I'm sure, have learned when, you know, you've been getting instructions from Anya or other teachers, you know, sometimes teachers will give us a very specific anchor, meditation object, meditation anchor to pay attention to, right? And so like common one would be to feel the breath at the nostrils or to feel that rising and falling of the abdomen. So in a way, we've create we're handing the practice something really simple. Okay, we're going to practice this marriage of intimacy and non-grasping. And you have this very little field, this very little sliver of life to practice in. Just feel your belly rise and fall. Can you be intimate with the rising of one in-breath? Can you be intimate with the falling of one out-breath? Can you trust the in-breath enough so that in a moment, for just a moment, there's no grasping, there's no controlling, there's no sense that I have to breathe in or I have to breathe out. We're just trusting the body to breathe. Even that, if I'm sure many of you know, that is not so easy to do. To, to realize those two qualities of intimacy and non-grasping just in the field or just with the experience of breathing in and breathing out or just sitting, you know, relatively still and to be open to the totality of the sensations in the body and just letting them rip, just letting them move, letting them be. Because we tend to want to hold on to the pleasant sensations and fix the unpleasant sensations and ignore the neutral but to be intimate with the whole experience of sitting, just like we can feel the totality now, right now, of the body sitting. And to really have that hands-off. Because generally the habit, right, that we have to undo is whenever I'm paying attention to something, I'm generally controlling. It's very hard for us to bring our whole heart to something, whole mind and heart, without an agenda. And the same way, it's hard to really let go when I'm really right in the middle. Like, I can let go with what's going on in Syria. Remember when Syria used to be a big deal in the news? Right? Of course, it's still terrible stuff is probably happening there. But when's the last time we paid attention to it? Because now we've got the COVID virus and we've got the uprising around the George Floyd murder and we've got this and we've got that. 
So it's easy for us to have a lot of non-attachment about Syria, unless you're personally connected to what's going on there. Right? Oh yeah, that stuff happens. But to be in the middle of that probably horrific scene there, it would not be so easy to be not attached, free of grasping, right? So in these little ways where life is relatively simple, relatively neutral or even better pleasant, then we practice being intimate with and non-grasping, intimate and non-attachment. And we're really building, we're growing our confidence. You know, I think this is the way. And then we don't have to go looking or making difficult experience happen. It's going to find us, right? We'll have a breakup or, you know, we'll have some physical pain or there'll be some emotional pain or some weird thing going on at work or whatever it's going to be. And then, so we don't go looking for it, but when difficult experience shows up, even in the relative simplicity of our 30-minute daily sit and a painful memory arises, we do the same thing. Okay, can I be intimate with this memory and the emotional charge that's arising with the content of the memory? Oh, it feels like this, right? Intimacy, stability of awareness. It's just this experience being known. And we're, can I let it rip? Can I be aware of the content and aware of the emotional flavor without trying to manage it, including do my dharma move, my meditation move, like I'll use mindfulness to make it go away, or I'll kind of, oh, it's not self, you know, I'll use that wisdom teaching, oh, it's not really me, it's just nature. Because you can use, remember I said that, that uh, wanting to escape and wanting to fix those shadows creep into our meditation practice, our Dharma practice. You're going to find the same habits we use in kind of our regular life sneaking into our meditation practice where we're trying to master the mind and get to some sweet spot where we're going to be safe or we're trying to get the heck out of here and escape the difficulty of my mind or my experience. And then we'll, we learn the hard way, that's not the way, that doesn't lead to release, and we start over again. And we've got these pointing out instructions. Okay, I don't know much, but I think it has something to do with intimacy and non-grasping and how they work together. And you can just start with whatever one you, that your mind is interested in, maybe intimacy. Okay, what would it be like to be intimate with what's going on? You can actually say something like that in your mind. Is it safe to be open right now? Is it safe to relax? Is it safe to allow? What happens when I explore the possibility of being intimate, undefended, and not trying to fix, and not trying to get away? Right? And, and then we're on the lookout like, the Buddha doesn't say that freedom comes later when you perfected your practice. He was very clear that the freedom comes in the beginning, in the middle, and the end. So there's a little flavor of freedom, even when we're still somewhat caught. 
like again that example of sitting painful memory some difficult interaction at work where you got really angry and someone's mistreating you or something like that and there it is kind of in living color because the mind you've been sitting the mind's a little bit more sensitive and so that stability of awareness actually amplifies the emotion that's shown up right and then you remember you know oh yeah intimacy and non-grasping and you remember the shadows of like the mind the tendency of the mind to want to figure out what to say to that person or figure out how i get even with that person or figure out how i'm going to escape this so it never happens again i'm done i quit i'm going to retire no no let me lean in let me uh trust the exposure to the and you know the trick here is to really value the underlying feeling what's the feeling here oh it hurts the squeeze it hurts the tension it hurts okay intimacy with this is that safe can i relax can i actually relax with this can i let it move this is the non attachment so first we're kind of in this frozen place like we know the heart's hurting the heart's tight and things are a little bit frozen and then the after a few moments we said well the the more profound exposure is not to have any kind of stance whatsoever with the emotional pain let it do like let it get as big as it wants to get or as subtle as it wants to get or let it morph into something else but you're kind of giving permission to permission for whatever is moving to move however it's going to move and you know that you don't know how it's going to move because if you think you know then you're still in a control mode oh i know what this is going to do you're still kind of trying to manage your experience so it's really like i don't know what's going to happen but i'm tired of trying to manage it so i'm just going to be intimate and drop any sense of needing to control because whatever is bound up in our heart it already knows itself how to unwind it doesn't need the sense of a me this parental sense of a me who's got to do the unwinding no the unwinding is nature itself it doesn't need anybody to do the unwinding that is that understanding itself is very liberating I don't have to do the unwinding. We all have a lot of unfinished business, emotional woundedness, whatever. But I'm telling you, we don't have to sort of do the work of the unwinding. We have to create the space where unwinding can happen. And that's that space of intimacy and wisdom, the wisdom that I don't have to do the unwinding. I just have to allow the unwinding to happen. the wound has its own intelligence the bound up part of our hearts it has its own intelligence about how to unwind it takes so much it takes a long time to have confidence because it's scary i'm sure you all know this it's really scary it's been really nice being with everybody tonight this talk like all programs at common ground is offered freely in the spirit of generosity To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, 
or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.